you're listening to the City Lights Podcast, where we are equipping you to exalt Jesus and extend the kingdom of heaven right where you are. Thanks for joining us. We're in a series um, called Inherit, and it's on Ephesians all the way through chapters 1 through 6, and we'll be doing this all the way through November. And um, the word inherit to me, I don't know if you guys have ever inherited money before or been in a, in a courtroom or, or looked at a will or written a will before, but um, inheritance is a powerful thing if you think about it. Um, it has a lot of weight to it. Um, uh, you know, I thought about, you know, if I were to inherit money from, from my dad or my grandfather, um, it wouldn't just be about my bank account. It wouldn't just be about finances. It would be about relationship. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to hold that money in, in, a, in a flippant way. Like, I wouldn't want to take inheritance that, like, my dad gave me or my uncle gave me or my grandfather gave me and I inherited. I wouldn't want to spend it on Burger King or, or, or Chuck Mignon. Um, I'd want to I'd spend it on college. Like, it has a relational uh, kind of uh, implication to it. Um, if, if I had a brother, if my brother got more money than me in the inheritance, it would speak more about um, louder to me than, than if I was going to earn money in a paycheck or if my brother would make more money at his job than me. It would have sort of an implication that would, that would go beyond um, just earning, that it would have sort of a definition of identity to it. And so this, this next couple of months, I would love for us to just dig into the scriptures and seek the Lord in Ephesians um, to discover what's ours and what can't be taken. Um, one of the things that I'll read today in Ephesians 1, it says that the Holy Spirit has sealed our inheritance, um, that the, the best things in life, the most important things in life, the most significant things in life are already ours, and there's nothing we could do to lose them, and there's nothing that we could do to gain them. If we were to find out exactly what we have in him, we'd never find anything better. And if we were to discover who we are in him, we'd never want to be anyone else. And so my prayer is that we'd have eyes to see and hearts to understand. Um, let me jump in here with Ephesians 1. Um, would love if you'd read it on the giant iPad behind me or on your iPad in front of you, whichever one floats your boat. Ephesians verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. He says, grace and peace from God our Father to the Lord Jesus, from the Lord Jesus Christ, praise for spiritual blessings in Christ. Paul is speaking to a largely godless population. Ephesus would have been like a like a New York or an L.A. in the sense it was progressive, it was an urban center, a place where people got there for money, not necessarily for family or for connections or for deeper spiritual things. It was a, it was a, a, a trade port that would go into Asia. It's modern-day Turkey. And so you might find a lot of people there that were running from their past and trying to head into the future and gain a livelihood for themselves. And, and as you can imagine, that kind of melting pot would bring about all sorts of um, questions and concerns about religion about who is God and what is God and how do we get along because it's such a pluralistic society, a melting pot, much more like America would be than if we were to go back to Jerusalem and try and interpret contextually, that it would be a melting pot of multiple different backgrounds and understandings. And in that, there, there was all sorts of options for who you'd worship. There was a, a, worship, there was a God there um, who was named Diana, for example, that had a temple built under her name. And Diana was such a powerful, influential God in the society of Ephesus that people would actually go in there, exchange money, and there was so much currency flowing through her temple that they could actually fund and loan out money to uh, large countries. And so this is when a spirit, it was not a spiritually neutral area. It wasn't a place that was kind of un, untouched by religion or spirituality. But at the same time, it was a very mystical uh, spiritual area. It was a place that God was out of touch, and it was this God for this thing, and that God for that thing, and God couldn't be known. He was just out of reach. He was, he was beyond into mystery. He couldn't be known. 
And, and so, so profoundly it would be, I think, for the church of Ephesus, which was actually a series of churches, that this letter would have been a circular rotation through to get a letter like this to say something like, opening, this is Paul, I am an apostle of a God I know his name. And not only that I know his name, but he knows my name. And not only do I know who he is and know his name, but I know his nature and I know what he wants to give and I give you all of these things. In fact, God is to be known and he is to be loved and he is to be cherished and he gives you his blessing and his peace. Verse three, praise to God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption into sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise and the glories of his grace, which he has freely given us uh, in the one he loves. So the personal invitation here is that he's not just doing a, a machine gun approach to sort of invite, like the way that you would get a spam letter from that annoying email thing that your wife signed up for on Pinterest that emails you four times a day to sort of spam invite you to something that isn't personal. No, it's not a number, it's a name. He's saying that God is to be known. He has a name, he knows your name, and he's called you by name. Then in fact, if we were to th think and reflect today, we are here because we've been whispered to, not emailed. We've been called here, we've been drawn here purposely. We've been chosen, predestined to be here. Because of his grace. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin, according to the riches of God's grace. He has lavished upon us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and earth under Christ. The word, that word sealed it talks about in verse 13, which I'll jump ahead, where just for the sake of time, it says in verse 13, and you, have, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed you were marked with a seal, a promised Holy Spirit, that what he wants to give, it's not, it's not an earning, it's an inheritance. And so what he wants to give doesn't just change what you have, it changes who you are. And, and when that happens, that transaction happens legally, it's sealed. It can't be taken from you. If you were to look ahead into the future, like in five to ten years, your life is going to look very different. Like lots of things will change for you in your life, in my life. My life will be totally different in five to ten years. My kids will be totally different. We'll be doing different things, caring about different things. Everything will change. Not only many things, everything will change. What, Jesus, what Paul is saying here in Ephesus to the church in Ephesians and to us is that that the things that God gives us cannot be taken, they cannot be changed, they cannot be shaken. They're the things that will follow us out of 10 and 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 years that many things will change. Relationships will change, jobs will change, but what will never change is what you have in Jesus. The most important things about you will never change because it is sealed by the very power of God and the Holy Spirit. God, I ask that you would visit us this morning, that you would help us to see from a supernatural perspective, not an intellectual one, but a supernatural perspective, We've got to hear it from you. It can't be all talk. It has to be power. And we need, a trans we need a transaction with you that is permanent. We need to lay something down and pick something up. And so I ask that you would give us your full blessing and peace, that we would hold it and, and carry it, and that as we hold it, we would know it can't be taken. It can't be stolen. It can't be robbed from us because of your sealing in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my first neighbors that I ever had as an adult moving in as an adult with adult neighbors and having to do the neighbor thing, was a sweet lady named Sue. And Sue was about in her 40s. I think she had gone through a tough marriage. She had a son in the military. And, um, and she was a wonderful neighbor to have. 
She was from Albany, New York, the same place that I was from, so we automatically kind of headed off. We had this kind of northern transplant into the south, so we had a lot of, you know, bridges that we could connect over. And, uh, and, and so Sue was a wonderful just friend and even, like, caretaker for the kids uh, as we grew to know each other more. You know, the patio homes that we live in that, that are kind of just like that lower range, just get into the house type of thing. The, the space between the, the yards is like four and a half feet. And it looks like the big pickup trucks are all ready to like eat all the little houses when you drive down into the, uh, into the cul-de-sac. But Sue would, would, would write our, our kids' birthdays down on the calendar and remember where the kids were and, and the birthdays. And they'd, she'd come over and give Elmo's and make cakes and, and give DVDs. And, and we'd go over there and we'd borrow, you know, yard tools and utensils. And, and I always remember like the houses were so close together. Sue loved to listen to like Shania Twain. You remember that song like, That Don't Impress Me Much? Yeah. They'd be like, so you got a car? That don't impress me. Bah, 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 bah. She'd dance it out. And Sue was just a sweet lady. It was like a, not a second mom, but somebody that we, we, we loved and, and cared for and, and were cared for by. And, um, and so it, it, was, it was an interesting thing to me, this conversation that we had this, this one time, because we had developed such a, a friendship and a rapport more than just being next door neighbors. We were friends and, and neighbors in the, in the spiritual sense, even. And, um, it was this kind of abrupt conversation that we had with her one time. She kind of came down the hill. There was like this divot between our yard and hers, and she walked down into the divot and walked up. And, and, and I was kind of caught off guard because the topic of the conversation was just different than what I expected. She kind of got into talking about how our houses were close together, and she started pointing to this tree that was like right here, let's say, for me to you. And she starts talking about the tree that would go up to be like 100, or 100 maybe 20 feet up into the air. And she starts talking about how the tree is kind of dropping these leaves and these acorns all over her roof, and it's causing all this noise and all this stuff. And it's kind of deteriorating the roof, and it's causing some, some trouble. And I was feeling kind of bad about it, and I was like, oh, man, I didn't even know I had a tree. Am I supposed to take care of trees? What's, the, what's going on with all this? And so we get into the conversation, and I'm trying to be an adult. And then she says this phrase that totally changed the conversation for me. I could feel the atmosphere of my heart change. And the phrase was, this is the phrase that she said, she said, and so I talked to my real estate agent, and I talked to my lawyer, and I just wanted to know when you're available to cut down the tree. And everything's fair and game. I mean, this was my tree. It was clearly on my side of the fence. It was what I was supposed to be doing. Like, you know, I should have been chopping down the trees. It was my responsibility. And, and if you were to draw the line the saying I was on the wrong side, side of the, li the line. But the word, when the, when the, in the introduction of law, when lawyer was brought up, something was sort of violated in me for some reason. And I had to like chew on it for a little while and, and think about it. Because after that, that word was spoken, after the word lawyer was brought into the conversation, you could, you could have seen from the outside in the sort of like, um, the kind of eye contact would begin to shift. And, and the free flowedness of the, of the sharing of information would sort of stop up and, and, and shore up. Like what was relational, what was once built on trust, what was once built on mutual blessing, what was once built on common denominator was now built on least common denominator and contract and, and boundary. In legal situations, if you've been in legal situations, which I just got a letter in the mail for jury duty, and that's way less cool when you're 34 than when you think that you get one when you're 16, because it has nothing to do with a few good men and everything to do with just feeling like you're going to the DMV for two weeks. So if I'm, if I'm missing an action at some point, you'll know I'm in jury duty, so pray for me. But, but legal situations are, are, are difficult situations because legal situations are so adverse to relationship. What's happened in a legal situation is that I can't trust you in a public domain, in a sector, 
And so because I can't trust you, because I don't know the motive of your heart, because I don't know you're going to listen to me, I don't know what you're going to do next, I'm going to create a piece of paper that I can trust. I'm going to put the paper on the table, and I'm going to sign the paper so you can trust the paper, and then I want you to sign the paper so that you can trust the paper. And so there, where, is, where there is no trust, we're going to depend on a paper. Because if we don't have a paper, if we don't have a contract, if we don't have something we can look at to define the terms of arrangement here, I don't trust what you're going to do, so I need a piece of paper. That's what a contract w- will do. In a legal situation... Whereas in a relational situation, in the beginning of the conversation with Susie, there was, there was a sense of free-flowed conversation. Like, I want to share where I am. I want to share my what. I want to share my why. I want to share my how. I want to share it all. I want us to be sharing with one another. When you're in a legal situation, everything you say can and will be used against you in the court of law. So whereas talking was a, was a benefit in relationship, talking is a liability in legal terms. And where there is no trust and where there is no relationship, there has to be law. There has to be legality. I know we live in the South, and I know we live in kind of the, the Bible Belt. But we can't, get, we can't get too exclusive about what we define as legalism. Legalism, legalism is, is, is simply rules without relationship. Legalism is far bigger than somebody with a certain shirt and tie and, and clothes and school and demeanor. And Legalism is way bigger than that. Legalism is just what happens with me and God when I don't know who God is and I don't know God's heart, so I don't know what he's going to do. Legalism is rules without relationship. Legalism is I know God, but I don't really know him. Legalism is I know God's what's, but I don't know his why's. Legalism is I want his hand, but I don't want his heart. Legalism is I want a contract with you because I don't trust you and I don't want a conversation with you. I just want you to tell me what to do. I just want you to solve the problem. And I sense this, like in community and in relationship, as we go after the Lord together, as we talk about what God is saying and what he's asking us to do, so much of us is so lean toward, God, just tell me what to do. On the podcast, like if you name the podcast, how to pray, whatever, how to love my spouse, how, like if you give the how or the what, people are clicking on it. People want to know what to do. But God's heart is, is burdened by this. He understands it. He's willing to give law when it was necessary in the old covenant. He's willing to give definition to what and the how, but the, the, end and the, the end of the means is never to be the what and the how. The end is always the why. The end is always the heart. The end is always relationship when it comes to Jesus. It reminds me of that, that book, The Giving Tree. You remember this book with the tree and the boy and the apples and the, and the branches? You remember how when the boy was young, he would just sort of swing from the the branches and pick, pick the apples. He would have this relationship for you guys who just didn't read it or born past 1997. Might have to catch you up, but the tree has a, is a personified character. And you could see what the boy is doing is different from the tree because the boy is wanting to get something from the tree. Like the whole time the boy is trying to get apples in the beginning and play in the beginning. And then eventually he goes off and wants to build a boat to go find a job. And then eventually he wants to saw down the branches to go and like build a house for his wife. And then it gets to the very end and all that's left is an old man instead of a little boy and a stump instead of a tree. And finally the old man realizes what he should have always realized is that he just needed to sit on the tree. That was the purpose of the tree was not to get the apples out of it, it was just to sit on the tree. And this is, I think, what God's burden is, is that he, he loves circumstances, like because circumstances draws back to his heart. But when we just look at the circumstance and we don't look at the conversation, we miss the purpose of the circumstance. We miss the greater blessing because we seek his hand instead of his heart. 
and we go on and we continually make contracts with God, the if-then statements, God, if I pray, then you'll bless me, right? If I go to church, then you'll bless me, right? If I go on a mission trip, then will you bless me? What if I say bless you and have a blessed day at the end of it and wear my God's gym t-shirt? Then you're surely going to bless me if I do that. Because we need to create contracts where we don't trust. We need to create conditionals. We need to create steps. We need to create, you know, protocols. Because in a world where I don't have trust, I've got to have a lawyer. I've got to hold you to it. We'll create contracts against God. And we'll say things like, God, if you don't heal this person, I can't accept that you're good anymore. That's the contract. Sign it. This is what it says in the Bible. If you don't do it, you're no longer the God that I thought that you are. I need the regimen. I need the protocol. If I don't have a spouse, you're not good anymore. This is the line, God. I, I draw the line. I define what this is. I'm not going to have the conversation with you. I'm not going to get roped into you because I talked to my lawyer already. He, it's the wrong lawyer. He told me not to talk to you. He told me not to share my things because anything I say or, or do before you will be judged, will be penalized, will be cursed. And so I don't have the conversation. I want the contract. I don't want the, court, I don't want the living room. I want the courtroom. And so, so God sends this guy, Paul, and what makes him special is not only that he used to be a Jewish persecutor of the Christian church, converted by God's miraculous power, but he's also a lawyer. He talks about in Galatians and other places like he's the Jew of Jews, you know, circumcised on the eighth day, which I have no idea what that even means or why that matters, but he's pretty proud of it. And it matters. It, it gets him clout in the system. And he's like, I have all of the legal things. And in all of his sermons, he talks about the ways that he's always fulfilled the Sabbath and he's always you know, done the right thing and given the right charity to the right people and not to the wrong people and so forth. He talks about that and then he gets to the end of his speech and he's like, I just want you to know my story to know I did it all right and it didn't matter in the end. I had all the what's in the house and I did them all and they didn't matter in the end. So God employs and sends a lawyer to go speak to the Jews in Rome. Before Paul would write the letter in Ephesus, he writes to these Jews in Rome and this is the crescendo of what this book says. It's gonna be on the screen. It's in Romans 8. It says this, For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, and so he condemns sin in the flesh. In order that the righteousness required of the law might be fully met in us, who did not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let my life, Paul says, be an infomercial to you of how much the law doesn't work. I had all the laws. 613 of them. I memorized all the Bible. The first five chapters of, chapters of the Bible, by the time I was 10, I had it memorized. I know the law, I worked the law, I did the law, I walked all the way down the cul-de-sac and all the way back to tell you that it doesn't work. The law does not produce what it aims to produce. The law cannot produce love. The law cannot produce wholeness. The law cannot, on its own, produce power and strength and faith in you. The what's are not the problem. And it's not that the law is the problem. It's not that the law is lacking and you needed 615 or 620 or 700 laws. You don't need any more laws. You don't need any more hows. You don't need any more what. What's because, because the laws in the hands of a sinful person will never produce love. The laws in the hands of a person that doesn't have a relationship with God, that is disconnected from God, that comes to the courtroom with a lawyer to try and mitigate a, a case with him, won't ever find himself in love. But what the law could not do God sent his son in Jesus, in the flesh, to die for what the law would have cost us 
so that we could fulfill the law. I did not come to vanish the law, is what Jesus would say in Matthew 6. I came to fulfill it. And Jesus came to fulfill the law. He paid every penalty and followed every law so that we could have his righteousness instead of ours. That's the gospel. And so in the, in the analogy we're working with today, it actually happened. Susie came down and understood that we're a young family and God must have spoken to her or she was convicted or whatever it may be. But she came down and Freddie Biggers, who's not here today, one of the guys that goes to our church that cuts down trees, I recommend him, a kind of tree man. I don't know his number, I'd say it right now to infomercial for him. He came in, it's like a $500 project. Susie paid for $250 of it and Freddie paid for the rest. I paid zero. Who owed that money? Me. Who should have paid by justice? That money, me. But what I would have paid of $500, which would have fulfilled the justice of that situation, would never have produced the righteousness and the fruit that the others paying for that bill would have cost. In other words, my $500 didn't go nearly as far as hers did. Because her $500 builds equity. Her $500 builds love and compassion and grace and mercy. Her $500, her paying the law for me, paying what I couldn't pay in that regard. If it was Jesus, it'd be so much more than a tree and $500, which by the way, he pays for all of our trees and our sins and all of our things. But that's just the beginning because mercy makes sure that we don't get what we do deserve. Grace gives us what we don't deserve. It'd be like if Susie came by and said, as a matter of fact, I'm not only gonna not charge you for the tree that you, you owe me, I'm gonna put all of your kids through college. And this is scandalous. And this is why the Roman Jews were so upset about this. How dare you say that God so recklessly loves us that way? How immature of you to see that God that way. That's no way a king would balance their budget, let alone how God would balance heaven. Just to let sinners in that don't have to pay for anything. And it's hard for, it, for them to, to, to let it sink in. He writes this letter to the Ephesians, a different context, a different historical setting. I'm going to put, put up some words now from Paul's letter to the Romans. I want you to see some of the language that he appeals to legalists with. He wants legalists to know that the law is not getting them anywhere. So he needs to take us to the courtroom to show us what Jesus accomplished in the courtroom, to know it's not the end, it's just the means, it's just the beginning. Legalism and law and contract and us making bargains with God just substituting our intimacy with him to make a contract with him because it's safer. Just, just tell me what to do so I don't have to go and talk to you and actually know your heart. Actually, like, I just want to know, like, tell me what to do about sex. I don't want to come into Psalm of Solomon or Romans or Corinthians and actually know your heart, like know the understanding. I just want you to tell me where the line is so I don't get zapped because I know you're trying to zap me up there. Like, that's legalism. And these are the words that he's having to use to tell us about the past so he can talk to us about the future. Lawbreaker, righteousness, accredited, transgression, justify, penalty, ruled, authority, slave, condemnation, acquitted. These are the types of words that he uses in Romans. I don't think we use these words anymore, but I do think we use the words like fair. God, why isn't it fair? Isn't it fair that I did this and they did this? You know what doesn't exist in the kingdom of heaven? Fair. He sends out 12 people and they all work 12 different amounts of time. Do you know what he pays them? The same amount. Because the kingdom of heaven is not fair and it's good that it's not fair. I'd be in deep trouble if heaven was fair and if Jesus was fair. He's not fair, he's good. 
And so he goes backwards in time. He says, I don't want to talk about the past, but if you need to talk about the past, you're stuck there so I can talk about it. But the goal of the courtroom is never to be in the courtroom. Jesus died in the courtroom to bring us life and enter us into the living room. These are the words that you'll see in Ephesians when we'll read it this, this next couple of months. He says, Father, in the first chapter, right? Chosen. I don't have to, but I get to come towards you. Love. Not, not profit or, or greed or, or zero-sum game. Not, not politics. Love. Relationship. Adoption. Sonship. Free. How many of you guys know when you go visit a lawyer, there's nothing for free? Free. Lavish. Forgiveness. Wisdom. Understanding. Inheritance. Maybe this is what Corey Asbury is reaching for is the 2018 version. Reckless might have appeared into that list. This is what Paul is up to. Ephesians 1, verse 3 that we read earlier. Praise be God, our Father, Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He chose us in him before the creation of the world. Do you feel this? Do you feel what it would be like? Back in that day, they said orphans were such an economic detriment that they would just find them in garbage disposals, just in, in bins on the side of the street. And to, to say somebody was a son or a brother, like, don't say that without legal justification of that. Like, that could mess up somebody's inheritance if you accidentally mistake. Like, brother and sister wasn't like, hey, brother. That's not how they did things. Like, brother was a huge legal implication. And so to take a Jew or take a, a progressive, you know, entrepreneur from, from Ephesus and bring them into that same place and say the courtroom has been solved, the verdict has been answered. The sins have been canceled, and you have been entered in not only to forgiveness, but belonging in a spiritual family. You are holy. You are blameless. You are chosen. You are adopted. You are, you are given freely grace in the one that he loves. This is the living room that you live in. There's no turning back. There's no going backwards into the back room, into the past. You can only live into the future forward. There is no courtroom for you. There is only living room left for you in your life. And so what Paul is arguing in Romans is that the era, like an entire era of time, we call it the Old Covenant, where God used to interact with people on justice in terms of mercy, is over. There was a time when, when the ocean would cause to swim over thousands of people and kill them because of God's righteous judgment. Because of our sin, we were not any less deserving than people in Genesis of their fate. It's not that God was meaner back then or it's not that God was different back then. No, God has always been just. He can't allow for uh, a, a something to happen that was evil, for it not to be penalized and, and made just. That's part of his imminent justice. That's a quality of his. It didn't just go away. He's not just in a good mood. Like Sodom and Gomorrah deserved what it got because of God's justice. How could a a rapist or a child molester just go on forgiven? No consequences? How could God be good and that person be free? Justice. This is the economy that, that we used to live in. And God in the Old Testament would have kind of trends and ebbs and flows of mercy that would kind of 
retreat from that justice at times. There would be mercy that God would give to his people, and it would be because of what he wanted to do, not because anyone were able to earn it or bring it down, but he'd give mercy. And, and so the Old Testament is very much a roller coaster of justice and mercy and pendulums of mercy and justice and justice and mercy. And then it says in Psalm 85, something powerful happened that split time and split, split history and split the curtain of, of distance between God and man, and that was the cross. It says in Psalm 85 that the cross was the place where justice and mercy could finally kiss. That justice wasn't just forgotten. It was, it was executed on Jesus. It was fulfilled in Jesus. It wasn't that the penalty got forgotten. It got paid by somebody else in Jesus. And when the penalty was offered and when the verdict was given, the courtroom was closed forever. We no longer live in an era of justice, and so we have no more bearings, upwards or outwards, of justice or mercy. We only have grace and truth in the living room of God. Justice says that when my son Leo grows up to be 16 and crashes the $20,000 car, justice says he better pay it back. Because if I cause an an offense to one person, then that offense, an eye for an eye, should come back and hit me. That's how justice works. we got to keep it fair. we got to keep it just. And sometimes if you're in a good mood, maybe you just on the seventh year forget about it sometimes, but that's the exception to the norm because the normative is justice. But in the living room, there's no more looking backwards. There's no more debts to be paid. It's already been paid. The only thing left is love and relationship. The only thing left is truth and grace. And so if truth says that the best thing for Leo and for me to be relationally bonded and for him and I to both grow in responsibility of who we're supposed to be, then if $20,000 is the cost, then $20,000 is the cost. But it's not outside or void of relationship. A conversation gets started then that's not about how to penalize Leo and get him to pay back what he owes. It's about empowering Leo to move forward into the future that he's always been destined to live. This is the economy that we live in in our marriages In our friendships with God, there is no more justice, and that is good news. There's only truth. The difference between truth, justice looks backwards in order to cover a payment that's due. Truth looks forwards. It always asks, what will love do in this situation? It always hopes, like in 1 Corinthians 13, as we read earlier, it always trusts, it always rejoices in the truth. Listen, truth will tell you to break off relationships. Jesus says that actually when we follow the spirit of grace and truth, we'll actually be more righteous than people that follow the law because truth is more powerful than justice. Justice can affect and operate on the outer world, but only truth, the spirit of truth in Jesus can speak to us in the inner world and transform us to to be lovers and not just doers. Truth is telling us what justice can't. Truth is empowering us. Truth disciples us and not punishes us. This is the list of things that we're going to see in Ephesians 5 when we get to it. These are the things that justice can't do, that truth and relationship can do. We would never want to read Ephesians 5 before we read Ephesians 1. Because if we read Ephesians 5 before we read Ephesians 1, in other words, talk about the how before we talk about the why, we're only going to create a new set of options. And by the way, we can be legalists about anything. Trust me, we can. We can be legalists, Pentecostalists, legalists, Presbyterians, legalists, Baptists, legalists, atheists. So long as we have distance between us and God, we have reason and ability to create contracts with God and insist that he follows those contracts. We can be legalists about getting up 6.30 in the morning. We can be legalists about getting up at 10 in the morning. 
It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the why, not the what. But this is what God says. You're going to be more righteous than those that are law followers because what the law could not do in me or in you, God did in Jesus and sealed with the Holy Spirit. We are not only possibly heading this direction, we are predestined to head this, this direction. Ephesians 5, that we're going to be imitators of God. Like I could barely know what he said, let alone operate the way that he operates in him in the living room. Walk in love. I mean, this, these are the types of laws, if I looked at it as a law as opposed to, if I looked behind it into justice instead of looking behind it into truth, like God wants best for me, he loves me. This would choke me, this would suffocate me, this would be, make me want to go get a lawyer to prove why I already do it or why I don't need to do it. Find some loophole. But the spirit of truth says, you are built to walk in love. And I have conversations for you I know you can't believe it. I know that you think I'm scared. I know that you think you're going to get struck by a bolt of lightning. But if you seek my heart and not my hand, if you go for my why and not my what, I've got things to say to you. I know your heart better than you. I've searched your soul and your spirit, and I know exactly what you need to say or what I need to say to you and what you need to hear that you might not only not fail or not um, oppose the law, but you'll actually walk in what the law couldn't do, which is love. Walk in the light. Discern what pleases God. Walk is wise. On and on and on the list goes. But it comes from a conversation that insists on the whys and not the whats. God, I'm anxious. I'm going to try not to be anxious tomorrow. What's the difference? Why did Jesus come then? Why did he have to die? Why the courtroom? Why all that? If we could do it on our own. Jesus, I'm anxious. Why? Well, because... I don't know, there's lots of things changing my life. It seems like school's kind of a mess. There's too much to do. There's too little time. I'm so stressed out. I can't get it all done. I feel like, I feel like I'm just gonna be a failure. I feel like I've always been a failure. I, I'm just becoming what my mom and my dad always said that I was gonna become. Now we're talking. What did your mom or dad tell you? We all grew up in governments, right? Our, 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 our living room at home was, a, in a sense, a courtroom in some ways because there were rules unspoken or spoken. Always wash the dishes before you go to bed. Always make your bed. Always be punctual. I don't know what the rules are. You have different rules. I have different rules. Then you get married and you realize your spouse had different rules. And you're like, wait, this isn't in the Bible? What are you talking about? We have different rules. We have to have contract where there isn't trust. And then he speaks to you. He's never afraid of the truth. He always delights in the truth. Wherever you find truth, you'll always find Jesus. Jesus is truth. If it's really true, it's Jesus. He's not afraid of it. And you'll come down into that conversation finally be slow enough to stop worrying about your wonder list and your tasks and your promotions. And it'll simply come down to things like, I'm more worried about the person next to me of what they're going to think of me. I know that person at that cubicle and that boss, and I know the, 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 the look that they give me. I know the call. When they call, when I see their number on the, on the caller ID, I know what they're doing. They're pushing me. I already know. And he speaks into you and he just says, I've given you rest that you know not of. I've been tired and in your shoes before. Come to me, all you who are burdened or heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Come yoke next to me and I'm gonna walk with you through this thing. I have power and provision that you don't imagine. And he walks with you. And this is the living room conversation. Like this is what the law can't do is it speaks to us because it knows us. Jesus speaks to us because he, he sees us, he hears us, he knows our heart, he gets down to the bottom of it. 
And then we come into him and we seek his heart and we get to know him. It's not just about our why and our what and our how. It's about his why. And he just says, these are just people, man. Like, I know that's your boss, but that guy, he's not that much smarter than you, you know? He's lost too. And this is really an otherness conversation. Like, you're struggling to be empathetic towards another person. And I know that they don't deserve it, but we don't live in deserve Fairland anymore. We don't live in Justiceville. We live in truth and mercy and grace. And so come to him in truth. And if you need to have a hard conversation with your boss, then have the hard conversation with the boss. And no matter what the circumstance is, he might fire your butt. But at the end of the day, you walk into exercising the muscle of speaking the truth and love in every situation, never having to run from anything. And the reason why you're tired is because you're always running from the truth. So you're not scared of your boss. You're scared of the truth. This is the spirit conversation. Like, this is where the Holy Spirit isn't shut up and like running around and all this crazy stuff. Like, the spirit is truth. He's putting you into an uncomfortable conversation and circumstance, not because to solve the what and the how, is so you can understand his heart in it and partner with him in it. I'll close with this quote. I read it before, but I wanted to look at it again in light of this conversation. It's a Danny Silk quote, and I shared it maybe two weeks ago, but he talks about parenting and he says, The difference between punishment and discipline is a powerful child. So what he's saying is that in the kingdom of heaven, it's out of 1 John 4, 18, where it talks about there's, there's no punishment in heaven. There's no punishment on earth under Jesus. There's only truth and love. There's only relationship. There's only not how can I hurt you. It's how can I help you. That's the whole premise. He's a giver. He's not a taker. That's how God speaks to us. That's rule one of the living room. And he says, what happens when we step out of punishment mode and into discipline mode is everything becomes about empowerment. It's not about control. It's not legal. It's not me trying to zero-sum win my objective against yours. It's not leveraging my, my, you know, my false pretense against you, hiring a lawyer to get you in a trap. That's not what God's doing. God's not a lawyer because Jesus has already paid for the price of the penalty. So there isn't any lawyering going on. There's only partnering going on in heaven and with us. He says, so what, what, happens, is that, what happens is that all conversations are led towards horizontal connection with Jesus as we shoulder with him and forward connection into the future as we walk into destiny. And it says the child is involved with making decisions about how to clean up their mess and to become powerful. Like Leo is, is not just paying the price so I feel better about it because I'm angry at him. He's learning how to steward things by saving his money and investing into a mistake that he made. And he walks away from that feeling empowered because now it's not because I've been afraid of carrots or afraid of sticks and reaching out for carrots. I've now internally been governed. The Bible talks about how God will guide us with our eyes. Leo's learned to be guided by relationship now not by justice, not by consequences, not by circumstance. He's learned to be guided by his internal compass and his values. And so, and so the, the, the empowered child, he makes decisions based on his choices. So what God does with Moses, even in the Old Testament, he does it with us now in the living room. He says, listen, there's two roads here, maybe five. But in general, there's two categories. There's life choices and then there's death choices. Choose life. What he does not do is, is penalize you and curse you and, and hurt you because you chose away from him and, and chose towards him. He is ill effect, he's unaffected by, by that. He's allowed you in freedom to make your choice where, you, where you're gonna do. He says, but I'm not gonna leave you alone in that choice. I'm too good for that and I'm too generous and I'm too relational. And so what I'm gonna do is I'm not going to paddle you into a decision. I'm going to reveal to you your choices. I'm gonna paint down the picture of life. I'm gonna go ahead of you because I've been before you and I'm gonna tell you where this road goes. And you can listen to me or not, and we're going to have the next conversation at the next impasse. But where you stand right now, I want you to see life, and I want you to see death. And with all that I have, even though I won't make you make this decision for you, I want you to choose life today. 
Because I came with my spirit to empower you to choose life. You are equipped to choose life. You are shown wisdom and knowledge and all revelation and, and, and all power and authority to choose life. But I'm not going to make it for you. Because you're a child, you're not a slave. You're a friend, you're not a servant. I've called you a friend. So he has conversations with us. Punishment is when the adult makes the decision in the situation. Punishment is control and the spirit is fear. God is not afraid of your disobedience. If he was, we'd be talking about justice, but he's not. He's too kind. He has too much. He's too rich. He has too much peace and joy to be flustered and disappointed and angry. Everything he has overflows and gives where you're lacking. He speaks to you and you, do, you, you don't have to worry about the debt ratio that you're, you're, you're drumming up with him. A powerful parent, as a powerful parent, we want to partner with the spirit of love and not the spirit of fear. This is the way that 1 John 4.18 says it. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not yet made perfect in love. As you consider your living with God, the way that you relate to God, do you live in a justice and mercy paradigm or do you live in a truth and grace paradigm? Justice and mercy will always cause fear because justice causes consequences and my actions cause God to be against me or for me. But Romans 8 says that nothing can separate us from the love of God and in the living room, he is only for us. The voice of truth will hit you sometimes and will tell you things like you need to quit your job. But that is truth. It's the spirit of truth. It's to help you, not to hurt you. It's to cause you to give you a future, a hope, a, a greater relationship, a bountiful connection, a, gr a greater sense of responsibility with him. And in this study, as we, as we conclude today, in this study, we're going to look at all sorts of conversations. But every one of these conversations happens in the living room, not in the courtroom. Reading Ephesians 4 through 6, what this is called the Mount Everest of epistles. It speaks to us of the highest revelations of God's heart, his why. But if we were to be hasty, and we won't be, to rush into chapters three, four through six, which are all about how to be married and all about how to get along and all about what to do when people gossip and all about the kind of what's in the house of life, but we miss out on chapters one through three, which is the living room of his heart, which talk about his passion and his joy and the reason why we do things. Heard, I think it was John Maxwell say, it's like when you're on three hours of sleep and you know your why, you can run and fly like wings of eagles. You, you, you'll have no weariness in you. Like we're designed to run with passion and with love. We're designed to live a life where our what is never bigger than the why. We always have the quotient, the, the, the joy, like nothing is supposed to be duty. To the legalist, it's all duty. It's all the what becomes the why. Get it done, get it done, get it done, get it done. Don't look bad, don't look bad, don't look bad. Cover, 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 cover. Never ask why. Never talk, never share. If I talk, if I shared, if I shared my feelings right where I'd get smited on the spot. So do your best to keep up and be thankful for that person that didn't keep up because they at least make you look a little bit better than you are. She says, come into the living room. Know me, seek me. Spend three hours of prayer on a three-minute decision and see how much power can come into that. It's his heart, not his hand. It's knowing him. It's understanding why he does what he does. We're a generation that goes to him with lawyers and want to pigeonhole him and want to loophole him. But he says, I, I dare you to come into the living room as a son and see what happens, to see that I'm the greatest lawyer you'll ever have and I've offered you the greatest victory and, and, and verdict you could ever imagine.
so that you could be sons and not slaves. Let's stand and pray as we close in worship. Jesus, it's my heart that we would have a supernatural above and beyond 2018 understanding of this inheritance. I ask for supernatural revelation of the scriptures. I know that when we put on the sunglasses, you heard what I said? Sunglasses. When we understand the spirit of sonship, we're going to look at the scriptures that get to, not have tos. God, would we not live a life of have to? What a waste that would be that we would miss the get tos of life because we're so legalistic. We're so afraid of what could be in, instead of imagining what could be with you. God, would you help us to see that challenges are divine, that you've put things in our path to have conversations, not to create contracts and execute them. And thank you for, for a revelation of not only not being legalist with you, but actually being vulnerable, surrendering the narrative and the ability to judge others, to be the judge in every courtroom of our relationships and just surrender to the person in front of us. Just be relational without legalizing and lawyering them. We thank you for the spirit of love that sets us free from the spirit of judgment and, and religiosity and legalism. We thank you you're setting us free with love. May our why always be bigger than our what. May our hearts be always bigger than our hands. In Jesus' mighty name. Thanks for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please subscribe and leave us feedback on our iTunes channel. For more information about our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc. Thanks again for exalting Jesus with us.